Last year, the Department of Health and Human Services announced that it aimed to have at least 50% of Medicare payments tied to value-based payment models by the end of 2018. Although value-based plan design is a relatively new idea for healthcare providers, it's been used for prescription drugs for years, and manufacturers have increasingly found ways to get around it. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Lamore Daphne, a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School and a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Professor Daphne has co-authored a perspective article about value-based purchasing and potential efforts to undermine it. Professor Daphne, you write in your article that drug manufacturers have used co-payment coupons to undermine efforts to steer consumers toward high-value drugs. Was there concern when value-based payment models were introduced that providers might use similar tactics in the face of attempts to reduce spending? I don't recall in the discussion leading up to implementation of the Affordable Care Act much in the way of concern about providers strategically behaving in a way to offset efforts by other elements of the supply chain to control spending. So in my view, this isn't a wholly unpredictable development, and yet it wasn't really planned for. Do you write that when pharmaceutical companies charge insurers high prices and then use copayment coupons to promote the use of those drugs, the only recourse insurers have is to exclude a drug from their formulary entirely? Have insurers implemented that strategy for providers, or do you think that clinicians and patients would rebel? First of all, certainly insurers have implemented the strategy of excluding the very highest priced drugs when there are therapeutic substitutes. We're seeing more of that formulary exclusion on the part of the large pharmacy benefit managers. When it comes to excluding providers, there's been a lot of talk about the narrow networks or selective networks or high-performance networks. There are different names for the same thing on the health insurance exchanges where basically these high-priced providers are not being included in health insurance offerings. Have there been any legal challenges to the use of the copayment coupons? When do they become kickbacks? To your question about whether copayment coupons have been challenged legally, they are banned on the part of any consumer whose health insurance plan is subsidized in whole or in part by the federal government. So that's Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries, as well as a host of other smaller programs. And in fact, that reality is something that enabled us to do sort of a falsification test of our empirical analysis, where we didn't expect coupons to have an effect in Medicare beneficiaries, and they don't because they are banned. It is the case that there are estimates showing that some 6% of Medicare beneficiaries redeem coupons, but that is in fact illegal. A question is, if it's viewed by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services as an illegal inducement to consume care, then why don't the commercial insurers choose to ban the coupons? A coupon reduces the pain for the consumer at the point of purchase. When she shows up, she does not have to incur the same kind of copayment she would absent the coupon, so they're fairly popular at that very moment in time. And as a result, a ban is a highly unpopular thing. In fact, the state of Massachusetts banned all coupons for a time, but due to popular demand, they in fact terminated the ban except for coupons for branded drugs that have bioequivalent generics. 
So these are very popular because they appear to be a discount, and certainly at a moment in time when the purchase is being made, they benefit the consumer. But in the long run, there are a host of pernicious effects of coupons because they basically act to reduce the price sensitivity of consumers downstream. And insurers rely heavily on that price sensitivity to try to negotiate lower prices for drugs. And the drug manufacturers, in turn, no longer feel as much pressure to keep prices down and, in fact, have relied on price growth to drive sales growth in recent years. In fact, in your article, you calculate that each copayment coupon increases drug spending by millions of dollars a year. So could providers have a similar effect if they waived cost sharing, if they did the same sort of discounting? There are a variety of ways in which that is taking place today. I'll give you two examples. One is that in a number of cases which are currently winding their way through the legal system, hospitals have waived cost sharing or co-insurance for patients who are utilizing their services out of network, which enables them to then gather what can often be a pretty high payment for out-of-network care but not force the patient to feel the pain. That might make patients happy, but in the long run, that really drives up health insurance premiums because now hospitals don't have as strong an incentive. If it's legal, hospitals don't have as strong an incentive to negotiate low prices in order to be included in network if patients can use them out of network and don't experience the pain from doing so. That's one way in which we are seeing providers offsetting value-based insurance design. A second way, there have been widespread reports that hospitals are subsidizing the purchase of marketplace exchange plans. What that does is it might shift some individuals into higher premium plans, maybe plans that have broader networks that include the hospital that's subsidizing the network. And that, again, is offsetting the mechanism whereby consumers would be choosing lowered price plans because of higher premiums, but they're no longer doing so. And that lessens the pressure on the hospital or hospital system to control cost growth and price growth. So are there any policy changes that would allow insurers to preserve incentives for patients on the drug side to choose generic or other high-value drugs and on the provider side to seek out high-value providers? I think to give a comprehensive answer to that question, I probably need a little more legal background than I have. But some big picture ideas for preventing the healthcare services sector from going down the same path that we have seen in the pharmaceutical sector would include insurers really clamping down to the best of their ability on the practice of waiving copayments and coinsurance. It would include bans, perhaps federal bans, on payment of insurance premiums that involve the contributions from suppliers who benefit from the payment of those premiums. So you say in your article that providers who are coming up against value-based purchasing designs can do several things. They can lobby for network adequacy restrictions, they can promote their brands more aggressively, or they can distinguish themselves by providing better care. So which of those strategies is in play at the moment? I think we're seeing all three. First of all, it's a knee-jerk reaction that as insurers create more and more selective networks, then providers are going to seek legislative ways to ensure that they are included and that the market forces don't operate in that way. So that is a priority I know of the American Hospital Association, and I wouldn't expect anything different. However, what I think would be more beneficial for the healthcare system than mandating 
that all providers or that certain kinds of providers be included would be make yourself as a provider indispensable to at least some subset of the population by differentiating the kind of care that you provide and then ensuring that you're included in an insurance plan that is consistent with what you are offering. So that would be the third of the three options that you mentioned for providers to do. They're engaging in all three, as I said, and the second is a lot of advertising. So increasingly, as consumers are to a greater extent involved in selecting and paying for the cost of health care, they are more of the target market than previously they had been. Certainly, providers target themselves to insurers, but now they really want to make sure that they're indispensable to patients as well. So I expect you would see some big increases in provider system advertising budgets in a lot of markets. Finally, are there ways to make that third strategy, delivering better outcomes and better patient experiences so that a provider becomes a must-have in a network, are there ways to make that strategy the most appealing of the three? Good question, Steve. You ask really, really good questions. Ultimately, if I'm advising a hospital system on its strategy, I would advise it to invest in something that is likely to pay off in the long run and not rely on some sort of loophole or on the lack of consumer awareness or on the inability of insurers to discern value. I would encourage providers to focus on the third strategy simply because it is the best recipe for winning in the long term. The other strategies might work in the short term, and we've seen a host of short-term business strategies. I have to mention Valiant here as an example, and the pharmaceutical industry in general, making use of games like copayment coupons and pay-for-delay and similar. But to sustain your enterprise, you need to be creating value and positioning yourself to capture it, as opposed to engaging in practices that obscure what the true cost is of what you're supplying. Thank you, Professor Daphne.